Hello and welcome to Back to Britpop, it's me Chris. This is the final best of episode of season one. Again, a massive thank you to everyone who's been listening and sharing the podcast with their friends and on social media. And again, thank you to all the guests who've taken part. It's been a great journey for me to get in touch and reconnect with the bands and the artists from the 90s. I never thought I'd get any guests at all, so the response has been amazing. Hopefully I'll be back in around March, April time with season two. In the meantime, continue to follow me on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Just search for Back to Britpop. Also, if you can and you haven't done already, please give me a five-star rating on Apple iTunes or even better, write a review if you've got the time. And even better, if you want to support me financially, then you can buy me a virtual coffee from my Ko-Fi page. It's three quid. I think the first guest on this episode is Kermit from Black Grape. Take care. And again, thanks for all your support. You enjoyed quite a bit of success then with uh, the Rap Assassins, but it, you kind of disbanded a bit later on, didn't you? And this is when kind of... Black Grape came about kind of with like a bit of a, you had a bit well, of a hiatus. Yeah, well, Black Grape, <laughs> really at the time, me and Sean was, we're, we're drug buddies. You yeah. know, he'd been kicked out of his band, I'd been kicked out of my band that we both started, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> because we were a bit full on. So in a way, it was kind of like him. It was like a vengeance group. Yeah, yeah, we'll show them. But we never got around to doing anything. Really, we just ended up getting fucked up for months and months and months of days, like, really are. And then um, we decided to get some demos done. You know, phoned up a few heads that we know. I phoned Jed, um, who's, who's the drummer for Rap, the Rap Assassins. Now he's played for Peter Gabriel, actually. Brilliant drummer, Jed Lynch. Yeah, and uh, Craig Gannon, the Smiths, um, the guys from Interstellar. Yeah, so the, and horse as well, Sean's brother, but they argued like fucking he couldn't come back, <laughs> you know what I mean? So and then we managed to get these demos together. And then um Gary Kershaw heard them, he ran radioactive um in the States and all that. It's like, oh I'll give you an album deal. Oh, these are brilliant tracks, okay. And he said, um, but you need a producer. We're like, oh, right. So he said, um, Adrian Sherwood was suggested to us, and Danny Sabre. And uh, we went down, we met Danny, and uh, we went, and, you know, we did a bit of work with him, and it went really well. You know, I'm, I mean, sure, the lazy bastards back then, you know what I mean? Like, we, we just did what we needed to do. You know? So it was a case of like, oh, we're, we're good with Danny. So we didn't, we didn't um, go and go and meet Adrian Sherwood, and it's something that I've always felt bad about ever since. Right. I love his stuff, but Danny was perfect for it. Black Grape, have, he was perfect for it. Even if I could say that now, I didn't know that then. I just thought, oh, this is a really cool guy. Can't be asked fucking traveling down the other end of the country to, to, to do three more meetings about going to the studio. I'm staying here. You know, it was one of them. Yeah, yeah. Right here, and it's, and it's working, you know. And if it's working, what's the fucking point in fucking going, getting off your ass and going searching for something? Do you know, if it's already working, where you're at. Were you conscious about kind of, at the time, obviously the music was quite different. It was, a, it was a, like a melting pot of different influences and lots of different sounds. It was... Black it was, Grape. Yeah, yeah. And it was like an oh, anti, yeah, yeah. anti-Britpop. We were into, you know, we used to listen to hip-hop. We listened to punk. We listened to metal. We listened to jazz. We, me and John, we, seriously, we used to get off our fucking heads all day and just listen to 
every genre of music you can think of. I watch yeah. Star Trek and sci-fi movies. <laughs> That's all we do for months. And, and, and uh, you know, and talk, you know, you know, we will philosophize, you know, the, that first break, Black Grape albums. Um, it's got a lot of religious themed tracks because we were, you know, we, we were searching, we were searching, we were, you know, we were both yeah. sort of suffering from existential angst, man. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Did you, were you quite conscious as well that you wanted to do something that was, you know, very different to what was being kind of played in, in, in Britain at the time? Obviously, we had the, the massive Britpop kind of That's the thing, scene. we didn't, we weren't really sort of like paying attention to what anybody else was doing. Yeah. We decided to do our own thing. And like, the, what we kept on saying is like, oh, we got across the, the ghetto boys with the Beach Boys via the Rolling Stones and, do you know what I mean? A bit mm. of Led Zepp and a bit of this. We had all, we had all these, like, things, and they all, all fucking putting through the Lee Scratch Perry fucking um, mincer. So we had all these fucking ideas, and, and we did kind of put manage to do that. And I, I'm proud of that fucking first Black Grape album, man. Did you know you... what I mean? There's not many houses I don't go to that I don't see on their CD fucking stand or whatever. Hey, it was you know, it was a, a, a it was almost like a it was a bow out of the blue. It was a it was a real sort of oh, fresh. Oh, I know it was. And I, um, it was. <laughs> I, I remember just being blown away by everything about it. Really, just you know, I, I, I guess I was I was aware of hip hop and rap when I was in sort of my teens and early twenties, but I wasn't into I wasn't aware that we, there was as many sort of great British bands and British rap music out there. And I think you opened up a, quite a, a doorway in terms of what was oh, out there. And um, I'm glad just, that, you know. just the funk, it was just all the... I mean, oh yeah, that, that, that album is like, <laughs> you know, it's got fucking serious grooves on it, you know what I mean? Yeah. You, you sit in the studio with the stems of that track and strip them back and you're like, fucking hell! <laughs> you know what I mean? Serious, man. Did you put yourself under a lot of stress in terms of, you know, writing? Yeah, I mean, in the beginning, we told everyone in the world that we were going to be the best band in the world. You know, we said, like, we're going to be like the Beatles would have been if instead of arguing with the Beach Boys, they just allowed Brian Wilson to join, you know. <laughs> and uh, it's like, you know, but not only that, with the sort of Sly and the Family Stone sort of funky edge as well. And, like, it's like there's no limit to our ambition and and there never has been you know I've always wanted to sort of create something that's much more special than, than I could ever be as a person and that's always been what's driven me and you know I think I think we've done it a handful of times you know we've 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 achieved something that's far greater than we ever had the right to believe you know and mm. I think some of that is just down to dogged determination and blind faith and ignorance um and i think you know when you're a young band you need a bit of that because the rest of the world all thinks you're a joke you know until you, until you get some success it's like yeah you just you got you're a dreamer with your head in the clouds and then suddenly you get a record deal and you, you, your records in the charts and suddenly you're a genius you know it's like <laughs> still the same guy still the same yeah uh, you know still trying to create something special is is, is is always the thing and yeah you compete against yourself but you also compete against the best and I always remember like 
before we got a record deal, I would stick I Am The Resurrection on by the Stone Roses and just think, oh my God, I'm never going to be able to do that. <laughs> yeah. and, and, you know, I don't know that we ever have, but I think in a song like Oh You Good Good People, we've sort of done our, our take on that big, you know, sort of bliss out epic number, you know? When did it all start to get interesting for you in terms of, uh, you know, getting signed? Um, I think it was like 1996, 95, 96. We started doing showcase gigs and um, Hut Records came along to one of them. And I remember David Boyd, who's this short guy with blonde, long blonde hair, and he came running up to me and just out of my peripheral vision, I just assumed he was a girl. And uh, turned to face him, and he pretty much jumped on me and hugged me and said, "I've got to sign your band." And I was like, "Oh yeah, great, let's do it." And then, and then he said, "I'm the I own Hook Records," and it was like, well, at the time they had like Smashing Pumpkins and Placebo and The Verve and all these great bands, and I was like, "Wow, great!" Yeah. So we went down to meet them, and uh, and their place was like uh, it was like Hook Records was like a little bedroom in the top of Virgin. It was like in the loft. And it was all like throws and 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 soft furnishings and, and, and vinyl albums and candles everywhere. It was like a hippie commune or something. And I just thought, I, I love these. It's these. Let's let's do and we cancelled all the rest of our meetings and just ended up going with hooks. I just thought they were great. About a few years ago now you kind of had a an, a sort of a second not a second win because you've kind of been recording ever since 96 really you had a, yeah. an album out in 2005 and then um there was a longer break wasn't there between uplift which came out in 2005 and then we had a bit more material in sort of around 2012 is that about right yes yeah yeah um there were lots of sort of unreleased stuff in the in the middle of all those things it's kind of quite you know there were albums that we started and, but yeah those were the ones that we've actually ended up sort of releasing and when did the the, the john peel thing come about because it, it was quite a, a local story here in our um uh, yeah we made on to south today yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we were pay. we were you know we we had some john pill plays not not loads not many but we you know he played us and we you know we sent him our records and wrote him letters and i think tried to phone him a few times and and frustratingly i never heard it it was always one of those things that like someone said oh you're on john pill last night and you'd listen the next four nights you wouldn't play then <laughs> so um so that was quite i, I thought that well yeah i'm really glad he played us but it's kind of quite sad and then what happened to us that was lucky and nice and really sort of gratifying was um at some point must have been 2011 maybe they put out a website that um, was the John Peel archive and what someone did was they started to scan his records and photograph his records and catalog them um and then they'd even take photos of the letters that were inside the records and it just so happened that the first hundred the you know the first hundred they put up on this website was the from the a section um and two of those first 100 records were ours um fathom and lovebound um the vinyl copies and there were quite a lot of attention for this you know because it's the first time that john peel's record archive had been seen mm. um and i start to see articles saying oh you know there's some real lots of things you'd expect in here some real surprises uh, two of the records of a band called Akron Stanley who's no one ever, no one's ever heard of kind of thing so <laughs> and by this point I'd got over my bitterness and embattlement and I thought well I know I will well we'll try and tell the world about this so I am um, 
you know, I was fired off a couple of emails to the people who'd written this article. Well, I can understand you're actually this band here in Southampton, and and I, it, for some reason we just got a lot of quite a lot of attention for it, and suddenly, you know, local radio and local TV and were interested. I think may, mainly because John Peel was held in such high regard, you know. Yeah. And particularly as people who work in broadcasting, they all idolise John Peel to a certain extent. So, yeah, for once, having you know spent years kind of managing to turn actively avoid any publicity or, or, or you know we actually dined out on that a little bit and it was it was quite nice it got a bit of a sort of attention and, and there were some some nice online articles and there was there was a uh, one that kind of traced the history of the band on um the quietus which is like a kind of interesting website mm-hmm. and uh and yeah and that really that, that was nice it felt like you know it felt like it felt nice to get a bit to be a bit better known for a little bit and um and that certainly fed into kind of our mood and and ebullience for a for a while and you know it's nice to be associated with peel i think people now maybe or younger people maybe don't realize quite how marginalized sort of indie music was and guitar music was in the 80s and early 90s you know it's kind of like mm. it was it was a real kind of minority interest wasn't it you know like bands that are revered now weren't you know weren't particularly bothering the charts then sort of thing um it, it was it just became the thing that happened with Britpop is that music went more overground and went more mainstream. Um, but for a long time, you know, so John Peel was like your ally in this yeah, fight yeah. against against everyone else, you know. Because I, I missed John Peel in terms of my because of my age. So I was yeah. uh, I was um, Steve Lamack and Joe Wiley, and then Mark right, and yeah. Mark and Lard. They were yes, they were they, they were did the same job. Yeah, yeah they'd be essentially yeah, exactly, and the, I suppose they were, had a bit more of a commercial. Uh, stance to them because yes they yeah. you know the BBC at the time were, were pushing and pushing British music and all these bands were just you know but the good thing about I think um, Steve Lamack and Joe Wiley they, well those two shows the evening sessions was they were playing a lot of uh, music from from the states as well so you weren't just being yes. bombarded with Britpop and British indie you were getting the pavements and the Sebados and all the other yeah. stuff as well Cannonball exactly. and all that sort of thing so yeah you could you could really dine out on on that kind of you know the uh, the American wave of, of grungy not grunge yeah. that wasn't quite happening but that kind of indie and then you could you could then feast on on the real British pulp and if you really wanted to blur and all that sort of real acquaintance yeah that's right yeah but yeah the pill thing was you know we were lucky to for him to have obviously brought brought that in that in some ways to the forefront i guess yeah and it's it's hard i don't know you know people go back and who haven't heard john but if you go back and actually listen to some of it some of it's online now some of his shows i mean my god like the stuff he's playing it's, it's so eclectic sometimes dreadful to, to be fair mm-hmm. um, but so eclectic you know, it's almost like you can't quite imagine a radio dj on national radio getting away with it now kind of thing yeah, yeah. Once he, he you know he'd play like he'd play a joy division session track and then like um some really deep reggae that you'd never heard before then some new hip-hop thing and then he'd play like a spoken word description of how to perform a surgical operation and then <laughs> it just totally willful um but you know kind of it took you on a journey you know so like You'd have to kind of be prepared to leave the room occasionally. You kind of formed at one of those kind of education workshops. It's kind of that's how they formed, and isn't it essentially? Yes, uh, that's back, right. Because it's I'm, like a workshop, then it became a little sound system formed to do anti-racist benefits, which yeah. is why it was called Asian Dub Foundation. Because there was really no, there was no plan whatsoever. It was just that John Pandit 
said, oh, we need a name for this act. Because, and, and what we want to do is we want to encourage young Asians to get involved in the anti-fascist fight. That's yeah. why it's called Asian Dove Foundation, right? Yeah, no yeah. other reason. Yeah. And um, then I came in like about four or five months after they'd started. They'd already used me on some music. They'd sampled me already. Mm. Um, I came in and I think Oni Ruto actually really wanted to make it more of a solid band. And I'd had that background, you know? Mm. So it kind of went from there. And that was like, I think about May 1994. How did you guys kind of gel in terms of the sound? Was it quite difficult to get... No, no. Or was it something that happened quite quickly? It didn't take that long, looking back. I remember we started, I did the first gig about June 94. And then I remember about three or four months later, mm. turning to Dida, it was like only like, how old was he then? He must have only been like 15 or 16. I'm in my mid-20s, I was saying to Dida. He turned around to me, both said to each other at the same time, we've got to carry this on, man. We did a gig where we were supporting Fundamental, Transglobal Underground, and all these nation acts. We were the first act on. And it just felt so fantastic. I think there's a bit of film of it. And uh, we just said, oh, we've got to keep doing this, you know what I mean? Mm. And I got a, feel, a real euphoric feeling. And I really felt like it's an interesting thing. Cause it was the first I've played in loads of bands, done loads of music. But this was the first thing that I really, really believed in, mm. you know. I just said, the world must hear this. I had no business plan or we didn't have any. I just really believe the world has to hear this. It needs to, you know, because it's an amazing driving force. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because, I mean, at the time you had, I'm not saying you were probably against, definitely going against the grain, but definitely going against what culturally was happening in terms of music. (laughs) And so, yeah, you were, you weren't obviously uh, an indie group, but you had that kind of, um, I know that I keep going back to punk, but because I, I think I, I was into you guys because of the, yeah, mainly the guitars, the rapping, which I was very new to, um, mm. the, the urban sound. Yeah, it, when I was at college, it was kind of a, quite an exciting time. There was lots of stuff going on politically mm. and things, and I was feeling yeah. quite energized about stuff. And it was kind of like an antidote to Britpop in a way. Whilst I really enjoyed that music and the indie, classic indie, if you like, mm. you guys were bringing something definitely different to the palette. Were you conscious that you were you were really trying to drill something into into the into the uk that was not there uh yes <laughs> yes definitely I, I wouldn't put it quite like that but no i i think in general i think you're absolutely spot on actually yeah, yeah I mean, we were on a mission there's no doubt i mean oni rutter had such an amazing musical philosophy john had an incredible music background you know he was a dj a massive collection and and myself we were quite similar in many ways we were all people who were you know, had this sort of, you know, South Asian influences from our parents. We were all around the, the, the older members. We were around the same age. And we'd been through punk, post-punk, reggae, dub, and politics. And we'd all been very inspired by Black Power Movement, Black Panthers, and things like this. Mm. We all exactly had this kind of grounding. You know, we were quite similar that way. Whereas, And then we were working with someone who was, you know, like only 15, 16, you know, and he had the jungle. That was his music. Yeah. And we were so excited by that music. I just remember when I first went to my first ADF rehearsal, the DJing and the MCing that those guys were doing, that Dita was doing and John was playing. I mean, I heard the music, but my God, it blew my head off. 
absolutely blew my head off. It was the best music that I've heard up to that point. It, jungle, and I mean jungle, not drum and bass, which is what it morphed into. It's the most exciting music I'd ever heard at that place, at, at, up to that time. It had a, a dub reggae bass line, it had distorted bass, it had incredibly high speed drums. I love the speed. There's not many dance musics that you can actually dance to that are really fast, right? Yeah, yeah. Not really. Most dance music or music that you move to, groove-wise, reggae, hip-hop, house, it's all a certain tempo, but jungle was like flying off into punk speed. It's punk tempo jump jungle, but it's got a reggae bass line that you can dance to. And the drums, the way they program the drums, unintentionally, some intentionally, went into free jazz. You know, uh, yeah, yeah. drums are very live. It's not like house at all, which is rigid and very electronic. The weird thing about jungle is the drums sound really organic. They sound like a mad 50s, 60s free drummer, you know, mm. on speed, free jazz, <laughs> or jazz sound to it even. What we did, which no one else did, I can safely say that no one else did this, was we had live bass and live guitar over jungleist breakbeats. No one else did that. I mean, no. Ronnie Size did some brilliant stuff quite soon after with live instrumentation, but it was still more on this sort of cool, sophisticated jazz tip, though it could get hardcore. But we were like, instead of punky reggae party, like the Bob Marley song, ours was like a punky jungle party, a lot with a live reggae dub bass, you know, and guitar, you know. So I, I developed a sort of jungleist guitar playing. I was just, I was, I tell you, one of my proudest moments in my entire life. I was sitting, around with a couple of Dido's friends, like I was about 14, 15, and I was playing guitar. I said, all right, do a rock thing. I said, yeah, I did something. And he goes, um, and he goes, do a funky thing, you know, a funky, dancey hip. I played some bit of what? And then he goes, do jungle. And I did jungle on the guitar. And it's like, they were just looking at me saying, oh yeah, that's jungle. I go, fuck it. <laughs> and there's a track on the first album called PKMB, which is yeah. jungle guitar. It's just, dampened strings with a load of phase on it, not playing any notes, just using the hand as a, as a rhythmic thing and it phasing all over the place. Um, you know, I was like, I had these kids saying, oh yeah, that's the jungle guitar. <laughs> it definitely worked. Yeah, it did. I mean, I, there's a lot of stuff that, yeah, yeah. I mean, it set me on a, off on an interesting journey with guitar. Feel cold. 